Hey everyone, John here. Just a quick word of warning. Uh, we will be spoiling this film in its entirety, so if you have not seen this film and you don't want it spoiled for you, uh, just hit pause real quick and go and watch the movie and then come back and enjoy the show. Yeah, we'll try this one. And I'll say it just once. Go ahead. Tell you what, we could have had a good life together. Fucking real good life. Had us a place of our own. But you didn't want it, Ennis. So what we got now is Brokeback to another episode of surviving chick flicks i'm john and i'm sammy and i'm joseph and it's still pride month and we are rocking along last week we did uh the one one for the lesbians and this week we are doing the letter g for gay and uh this is one sammy actually threw out into the uh suggestions and uh I thought it was a good one because I hadn't seen this particular movie in about 10 years. So I was curious to go back to it. And obviously, you know what we're talking about. But just in case you missed what you downloaded, we are talking about the 2006 Oscar winning. Should it have been the best picture? Uh, Brokeback Mountain. So I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of really interesting discussion on this one. So let's. Play the trailer and uh, we'll get to it. If you're looking for work, I suggest you get in here pronto. Well, since we're going to be working together, I reckon it's time we start drinking together. this just like this always this thing grabs hold of us in the wrong place and we're dead boy sure found a way to make the time pass up there you don't go up there to fish you don't know nothing about her you have no idea how bad it gets if you can't fix it you got a standard i wish i knew how to quit you
All right, Brokeback Mountain, starring Heath Ledger, Jake Gyllenhaal, Michelle Williams, Anne Hathaway, or as I originally had it written down, The Joker, Donnie Darko, Deep Throat, Catwoman, <laughs> with Randy Quaid, a.k.a. Cousin Eddie, Linda Cardellini, a.k.a. Velma from Scooby-Doo, Anna Ferris, a.k.a. The House Bunny, <laughs> David Harbour, who's on that, a.k.a. Hellboy, or that, you know, whatever his character is from Stranger Things, and Kate Mara, a.k.a. Sue Storm. (laughs) Based on the story by Annie Proulx, written for the screen by Larry McMurtry and Diana Osana, who also co-produced the film, and directed by Ang Lee. So, just for consistency, Sammy, Joseph, when was the first time y'all saw this movie? You go first, Sammy. Shocker. You guys are never going to believe this. I have no idea. (laughs) Good Lord. (laughs) Yeah, I really have no clue. Um, I can can tell you this. It was sometime after it won Best Picture. I do know that. Um, Um, Not won Best Picture, but sorry, you know what I mean. After it was nominated. It was sometime after the Oscars that I saw it. Um, but I don't remember in particular. I know, you know, I, because obviously since it was already nominated, it was after, it wasn't in theaters when I saw it. And I think I just, I was a big Heath Ledger fan. So pretty much anything he was in, I wanted to see. And I remember thinking it was just okay back then. And I kind of got bored with it, but now completely different story. Of course I was like, 21 so yeah okay so i saw this in theaters uh i know it had just come out to our area uh so i'm i know this is one of those movies that like opened up in certain markets and expanded wide i'm gonna assume i saw this in february just because uh i think it had expanded wide back then details are fuzzy i know i saw it with a girl who would go on to be an ex that's but we saw it before we were dating and yeah i too remember not really liking this movie and not because it was the quote-unquote gay cowboy movie i i was kind of like you i was bored uh i felt like we spent forever in the trees with the sheep in the mountains and the snow and a bear and it's just like can we (laughs) fucking move on please i didn't come to see a national geographic documentary and what's weird is i've owned this movie several times and like another movie that i will not (coughs) mention like another movie that i won't mention that is also on my I don't like this uh, list, but everyone else does. I tried several times over the years to reevaluate it and just was still unable to get into it. Now, after a decade from probably the last time I tried to watch it, I'm, I kind of came back to this with Fresh Up. And we'll, we'll get into how I felt about it later. I will say... Right off the top, and I've held this opinion since 2005, this is one of my favorite soundtracks of all time. Uh, Just that mix of 
old school country, some singer songwriter stuff. Fantastic score! Like I, I bought this on CD, and I regret not um, ever not not keeping it. But I, I was very tempted to go on eBay to see if I could find an inexpensive copy of it to listen to again. And then I just downloaded it on Spotify. I, I will say this is also the second Ang Lee film I ever saw, and I think part of the reason I was so harsh on this film is because of the first angly film I saw. Joseph, do you want to guess what it was? Uh, what was it? Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> really? Which one? Uh, the Eric Bana Hulk. He, oh. in fact, and in fact, that movie kind of broke him because uh, whenever he got done making that and it did what it did and it got the reaction that it did and what's kind of cool about that movie now is that it's like a lot of other movies that got completely trashed whenever they first came out i haven't seen that movie since 2003 so i don't know if they're right or wrong or not but it it, it is always interesting whenever these uh god help us if that second if the answer to that second question is yes <laughs> never say god never Say never. Yeah. But Ang Lee, um, looking through his career, he's always taken on a lot of interesting projects, whether or not you like them or not. But this isn't even the first uh, LGBT-related film he's done. But he does big movies about real life. Like, um, he made The Wedding Banquet and Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and... He directed Emma Thompson's uh, Sense and Sensibility and The Ice Storm. You know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is the first time he really got into the uh, big, you know, like, like big budget epic. And to this day, I still have not seen that movie. In, <laughs> fact, in fact, looking at his filmography, I've seen exactly three of his films, two of which I own. <laughs> which ones have you seen? Uh, I've seen this one. I've seen Sense and Sensibility uh, and Hulk. And Hulk is the only one I don't own. Uh, but uh, his most recent effort was 2012's Life of Pi. Um, and before that, he too ventured into NC-17 tor- uh, territory with a, uh, a Chinese love story called Lust Caution. Um, I I never saw that, but I kind of wanted to because like any film that was coming out around that era that was getting an NC-17 rating. I, don't, I, I was, that always piques my interest because it's like, mm, what did you do to get <laughs> to warrant that rating? Well, if you, you really should watch Crouching Tiger. That's a... I know, I, I know I need to see it and I need to see Eat, Drink, Man, Woman and I need to see Ice Storm because I've heard nothing but great stuff about all of those. To this day... I think, Crouching Tiger is one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. Like, everything in it is just extremely well shot. Part ways and return to their normal lives. Ennis gets married to his fiance Alma, played by Michelle Williams, and has two daughters. Jack returns to Brokeback Mountain next, the next summer to work for Aguirre, but is refused employment due to Aguirre knowing what the two did to pass the time up. Jack then moves to Texas, where he just slowly destroys his body on the rodeo circuit and meets and marries Lorene played by Anne Hathaway, and has a son. Over the course of the next two decades, Jack and Ennis meet up to continue seeing each other and continuing their love affair 
whenever time allows. Ennis and Alma eventually divorce, and Jack remains in a loveless marriage, often traveling to Mexico to hire male prostitutes when Ennis is not available. As the years pass, it becomes harder and harder for the pair to meet. In 1983, Ennis gets a letter that he sent to Jack, returned to him, marked deceased. Ennis calls Lorene, who tells him, that Jack had died in an accident, but Jack Ennis knows the truth about what happened in Jack's death. Ennis visits Jack's parents, who refuse to let him t- take Jack's ashes to be spread on Brokeback Mountain, but is given a pair of shirts found hanging in Jack's closet. This movie is based on a very short book that um, I technically didn't read, but it was read to me today by Campbell Scott of uh, Singles and uh, Secret Lives of Dennis fame. <laughs> This is a very short book book that became a very long movie that moves by very quickly. Yeah, kind of surprisingly quickly. I know my original complaint was I wanted more of the years that, you know, after that initial meeting, because in, in my memory, the initial meeting on Brokeback Mountain was like half the movie. And it's really just, it's about a third of the movie. Because to me, the, the most interesting parts of this movie are the years where they are struggling with who they are. They're struggling to be together. They're struggling to keep their marriages together. Uh, some of them are just struggling to stay employed and so on. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I found that to be the most interesting part of the movie, the, the middle, actually. Uh, yeah. Because then you get to see who they are. You get to see them fleshed out as characters. You get to see what their faults are. You get to see what their relationships with the with their well, one of them with their kids, and the other you just get to see what the relationship with this their family in general. I'm gonna ask a very complex and complicated question. This is dubbed the gay cowboy movie, and this may not and this is maybe the dumbest question I ever asked, but are Jack and Ennis gay? Yes. Are they? That's a good question. Because I this question I've heard this question asked before, and the answer I kind of heard from a podcast years ago was, it's not that they're gay. Like Jack is more Ennis is just in love with Jack, and it's and it's regardless of what his gender is, because he tries oh. to make it work with Alma. He try uh, he doesn't try to make it work with Velma from Scooby-Doo. <laughs> He's just got these women throwing themselves at him, and he... He's just in love with Jack. That's my reading of it. And it's and the fact that Jack is a man is honestly irrelevant. But it is, you know, to, irrelevant to his feelings, but it is very relevant to the reason that they can't just be together, especially in that time. And see, and I didn't see it that way. Now that you put it that way, I see it that way now. Yeah. But I just probably saw it as them just going on with their lives just so they could survive and not have to worry about ridicule. I or, think or what death. I think what alludes to that is what Ennis tells him. He's like, you're why I'm like this. Both characters have been described as bisexual um, with Jack leaning a little bit heavier into the gay side since he is the one that is going off and visiting other men when Ennis can't be there. And I don't know. I think at the very least, Ennis struggles with it more than Jack does. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And this is just, I don't think there's anyone 
correct reading on this movie. Uh, I think P- Peter Bogdanovich back in the early 70s, also starring Randy Quaid. <laughs> and then uh, I kind of, re- and then I wanted to kind of do a compare and contrast with the uh, lesbian version of this. And if there is a better quote unquote lesbian version of Brokeback Mountain, please someone tell me. But for, for, but for me, the companion piece for this is uh, Donna Deitch's uh, Desert Hearts, which is about two women falling in love in the 50s in an era where that's not accepted. It just has a slightly less tragic ending. By slightly less, slightly less, do you mean a happier ending? Or Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the way that movie ends, and I kind of want to avoid talking about it, uh, you know, heavily into detail because I want to do that movie on the show so much but the end of that movie is you you can at least write some nice fan fiction about what happens afterwards but do you I mean do you think with the way that they set this movie up that it ends any other way no 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 I I mean I the reason I think that is because you know it's the Chekhov's gun theory. If you introduce a gun in one act, it has to go off by the end. And with Ennis telling Jack that story about the two, uh, two guys that live together on a ranch that everyone knew about and everyone made fun of. And the fact that one of them was murdered and Ennis's dad even went, took him back to show him the corpse to say, this is what happens when you're that way. Then, one of them was going to die and and jet and oh god i don't want to sound like i am victim blaming or shaming on when i say this but jack was the riskier of the two because he for ennis it was just about jack jack was all about ennis but if ennis wasn't available he went to mexico and then he started you know kind of flirting with uh david harbour's character Towards the end, he had he, just fully, he had more fully embraced who he was. Well, and see that when he were talking about that, that's what I wrote in my notes the childhood story where he was talking about that's like that's obvious foreshadowing, and I've forgotten all about these parts. Mm-hmm. And so, so I've seen this movie, it's like that's a foreshadowing moment. It's like some one of them, it's going to happen to one of them. I just don't remember who it was. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Do you think when they first met up on Brokeback and they first got together? Had either of them ever been with anybody else? Um, I want to say Jack may have been. Ennis, no. I, I think the only person Ennis had been with was Alma because they were high yeah. school sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Jack, possibly. Because um, I'm just saying, that was a bold move. It was a very bold move. Yeah. But, I mean, you can... You know, I'm, I'm finally able to see what I didn't see back in 2005. Because it just, to me, on my initial viewing, it did feel like it came out of nowhere. But Jack was able to get Ennis to open up. I, you know, I, I love that line about you know, where, where he sa- says, that's the most words you've spoken in two weeks. He's like, that's the most words I've spoken in a year. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, it's subtle. It's incredibly subtle. Uh, but, I mean... <sighs> It's, you know, I, I think Jack wouldn't have been so daring had he not thought Ennis would be receptive, and it turned out he was. Yeah. You know, 
to that point, the dialogue in this movie, there's not a ton of it, right? This this mm-hmm. movie is scenery heavy. It plays a lot on these kind of small character moments where the character is mm. doing something as opposed to saying something. But despite that, the dialogue is exceptional. Yeah. Like, it's, and it's that, really, really well written. And that's the reason I picked The Last Picture Show as the one to go back to, because that is very, very Larry McMurtry. Or at least, you know, in that particular, you know, arena. I mean, Larry McMurtry writes, you know, these very human stories. Sometimes they're epic, sometimes they're small, but... He he penned Last Picture Show, he, the book and the movie. He picked, he uh, wrote the book for Terms of Endearment. He wrote the book Lonesome Dove. You know? So he's, if you're going to tell a story like this, he's the guy that you get to write the script. And when his writing partner, Diana Osana, read the story in Vanity Fair whenever it came out, I believe it was Vanity Fair, um, she immediately called him and it was just like, we have to do this as a movie. And this movie spent almost a decade trying to get made because even in the 90s, even as queer cinema was kind of taking off and becoming a big thing, a big, you know, (laughs) a gay romantic drama between two cowboys that was not an easy sell. Even back when the script was bought by Focus Features around 2001, they were the guy bought it knowing this is a risky. All the way up to the when the film was released, they were like they weren't sure if the gamble was going to pay off. They were paying attention to the box office draw on this because they didn't know is anyone going to see this outside of a niche audience, and the answer ended up being yes. So, yeah. oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I say because yeah, even because where we live at, uh, there was a bunch of uh, controversy around it, and of course, these were people that were never going to see it in the first place. But yeah. there was a well, and about it, and it was just well, one of the, they were just trying to get it not to be played here. I don't, I don't remember so much of that uh, because this movie was going to play here regardless because it was getting the Oscar attention and. They they were seeing it was making money, so it was not a risky move for a theater around here to take it. What I remember, <laughs> and you'll probably remember, is like whenever this movie came out, so many jokes were made, oh, and yeah. I mean, even amongst the people that you and I were personally working with back when we worked together, oh, it, yeah. you know, it was used as an insult, and you know. <laughs> And these and these were people that had never seen the movie to begin with, which is and so probably funny. never. <laughs> Given it, that it was such a critically acclaimed film, I'm about to sa- say something that is is going to sound insulting. Please don't take it. But these are people that think that things like Fast and the Furious are the pinnacle of cinema. Now, oh, gotcha. I like those movies. Okay. Yeah, the, the critically acclaimed doesn't mean shit to these people. And in fact, they whenever really you tell them. Yeah, and in fact, if you tell them something that is critically acclaimed, that's code for the. They take that as code for we're just not going to like it, and that's the reason why 
Transformers Five makes a bazillion fucking dollars at the at box office, and then something like Moonlight, which did win the Best Picture, was it did play here only because it was an Oscar nom, and then after like like a handful of days, that shit was gone. Meanwhile, yeah, Sammy's favorite La La Land played for at least a couple geez. of weeks. <laughs> you mean you mean to tell me that people don't realize they can like their guilty pleasures and appreciate actually good cinema as well? Okay, so I want I want to talk about the performances, but I want to start by asking a question. When okay. you first when you first learned about this film, were you at all shocked by? I don't know whether or not I'd say were you shocked by Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal's choice to do the film, or were you shocked by the fact that they were chosen to do the film? Uh, neither. Um, I, I was at that point in my cinema goings where I'm just like, I have seen straight actors play gay characters. It's not out. It was not out of the norm. So for me, it was like, okay, so. The guy from uh, The Patriot, Mel Gibson's son from The Patriot, because I didn't see him. Oh, don't talk about it. Uh, It's like, so the guy from The Patriot and Donnie Darko are going to do this this movie. Okay, cool. That makes sense. It made sense to me. So it wasn't like, oh my God, the the guy that should have been Spider-Man and uh, the guy from A Knight's Tale are playing gay. It's just like, okay, they're just actors that took a role. (laughs) Yeah, I never questioned it either i was just like okay yeah sure uh yeah in, see, in fact I, time, I, don't think I, I don't think jake i think jake gyllenhaal was starting to become a big name but heath ledger was still kind of not not really seen as a huge like actor that could do anything he was still known for like rom-coms wasn't he yeah it was basically like from 10 things i hate about you to um well, which is incidentally uh, why he did this film. Yeah, and yeah. I I love Ten Things I Hate About You. I think that's a, I think that's a great uh, kind of a teen comedy, teen rom com comedy. Yeah. Mm. Um, and so- and I only recently saw that movie for the first time thanks to Sammy and our friends group. But so for me, my Heath, my Heath Ledger perspective was. The Patriot, which he's in it for like 15 minutes. And then this, where it's like, okay, they're letting him be a star. And then Joker. That's really... Hmm. That was really how I perceived Heath Ledger. is based on those three things. But if you take the Patriot off and you put 10 things I hate about you in his place, and then those three in a row, it makes you wonder, like, Jesus, what... What were we denied by him not Good being God. anymore? <laughs> so I think my um I think my introduction to oh well I don't I take this back. I know my introduction to Jake Gyllenhaal was the day after tomorrow. So this was definitely this was definitely post that film. And then with Heath Ledger, it was Ten Things I Hate About You and Patriot. But so if we had a title, if we titled our episodes like uh Friends episodes. The one where Sammy out. The one where Sammy tries not to cry while talking about Heath Ledger. Oh, um, yeah. So when I was when I was in high, this is embarrassing. So when I've been in high school, I was in high school. I was in high school when he died, and I remember I remember that day because I came home from school and my mom told me, and I probably stayed up till 
two o'clock in the morning watching the news about it. And then for the rest of high school, I had this white binder with a printout picture of him. That was my binder that I came to school because previous to him dying, he was hands down. There was no competition. My favorite actor. So for years after I could not bring myself to watch, I don't know when I started watching his films again. And then I, I don't know. I still may not have watched Patriot. There's a lot of reasons to not watch Patriot. Oh, and <laughs> we'll have a whole other discussion about how I prefer Patriot to Braveheart. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's he right. Was, I take it back. Yeah. City Slickers. Yes, I forgot yeah, he about was, that. He was Billy Crystal's son. And then uh, my dad was a huge fan of the movie October Sky. Um, he watched that a lot. But my, do I? I said, I forgot he's in that movie. Yeah. I still haven't seen Donnie Darko. Yeah, Donnie Darko was the first time I saw Jake Gyllenhaal, the star. But he would pop up in uh, things like um, Lovely and Amazing, the Nicole Holof Center film, um, things like The Good Girl. He he was kind of becoming an indie guy, uh, with the exception of the 2001 classic Bubble Boy. God, I forgot about that movie. Back when I was writing for Project Shanks, uh, someone, I think it was Mark, talked me into doing one of my um, Monday movies of the week or whatever <laughs> called my call uh, about Bubble Boy. And that movie's honestly not that bad. <laughs> but then, you know, he, but with Brokeback, he, he was truly like, he became a star and he, you know, he went from Jarhead and Zodiac and uh, Brothers. He, I, I, he got to have a really great career, whereas, you know, he will never know, but at, at least we got the films that we got. Um, I mean, because, I mean, John Cazale, he did five films. All of them were nominated for Oscars, and then he died. So, Right. I mean, it, it, is, <laughs> it is interesting to think about. And so this is kind of the argument we were going to have last time. So this, this was one of the things that bothered me in the, with Emma Stone, right? Because I look at somebody like Heath Ledger and the different characters he played over his career – And it's almost unrecognizable. Like, I look at him in this film, and I don't even see the same person as the character he played in Joker. Yeah. I I didn't feel like Emma Stone ever had that same effect. And that's one of the things that a little bit bugs me about her, is because I always see her, and I don't ever see her character. Look, I, I, I love Emma Stone and Anna Kendrick a lot. I will see anything because they are in it i kind of agree with you because i tend to think that she doesn't always play the same character but you see oh it's emma stone doing this and it's emma stone doing that or it's anna kendrick doing this or it's anna kendrick doing this or anna kendrick doing this again uh, <laughs> it's it's so, become more it's of a, anna kendrick doing this again <laughs> yeah but uh, in, in, do it, and I love Anna Kendrick. So yeah, well, and I don't care if uh, you know. There, there are so many ways to build a career. Daniel Day Lewis immerses himself into characters, becomes someone else every single time. 
and that's great. Emma Stone and Anna Kendrick play a, a version of themselves in every single film, and that's great. As long as what they give me to work with is interesting, I'll go with it, um, because not every Daniel Day-Lewis experience is among my favorites. I right. have taken a nap. I may have taken a nap in Lincoln. <laughs> no i i hear what you're saying and um i don't know i just i agree with you i it's an entirely different experience and one is not necessarily better than the other but i i do remember being completely floored and to this day in a world in which the joaquin phoenix performance as joker exists where the blurred line between reality and satire lies just Follow Randy Quaid on Twitter. Since we're talking about the cast, let let me ask this question. Do you think that with a lesser cast, this movie is as good? No. No. Mm-mm. no. I agree. As good as, the, as good as the dialogue is, I sort of think that this entire film is carried by how good all of the performances are. And the chemistry. I think... I think the entire film hinges on the chemistry between Jill and Hall and... He's Ledger. Yeah, I mean that's the one you got to get, you know, perfect. And then uh, what's great is um, at the time, whenever he got the script, he was da- dating Naomi Watts, and she was just like, "No, Heath, you need to go read for this movie." By the time this movie was date was uh, in production, he was dating Michelle Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Bet she uh, oof. yeah. Well, and no, it's true because. Uh, Heath Ledger put a lot of stuff in his performance that was just very subtle and very yeah. just just kind of told you more about him just by the way he moved and the way he reacted yeah. to things. Yeah. Gyllenhaal, I, too. I, not, more, not as much as Heath Ledger. Yeah. I, I do have to, Sammy, I need you to sit down and not yell at me. I okay. do have to knock uh, one aspect of Heath Ledger's performance in this, and that is... His character mumbles every damn line, and I have to have the subtitles on to oh, understand them. Yes, because there were times when, like, I I always wear sub, use subtitles anyways, just because I'm the older I get, the more deaf I am. Hello. <laughs> but there were times it's like, oh, so I'm thank God I had the subtitles on because I had no idea what he just said. You know, <laughs> yeah. frankly. All I can say is that sounds like a you problem, not like a problem with his character choice. Hear better. What? <laughs> okay. Also, okay. Also, if there's this, actually... just this magical device I can shove into my ear to make sounds come in clearer. It's not like okay. they make actually science, there is. <laughs> No, actually though. It does kind of remind me of, and I wonder if he took any inspiration from it. I I doubt it, but I'm curious because they're both, um, you know, one's British and one's Australian. But he kind of reminds me a little bit of Tom Hardy's performance in Lawless. Because he tended to to do a similar thing. And Mm. I honestly, I think it was just a character choice and it didn't bother me personally. Yeah. Well, it didn't bother me. It was just like, I would love to be able to understand you. But, I think um, they both did a stellar job with the accents. Yeah. Yeah. And also, Tom Hardy tends to mumble in everything he does now. <laughs> Don't because, be hating Bane, on you can, un- you can understand everything Bane says. 
All right, so we we talked about the 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 men folk, but what about the women folk? Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway. Uh, Michelle oh, Williams. I felt so bad for Michelle Williams' character. I felt bad for both of them, honestly. Yeah. I, yeah. Michelle, for some reason, Michelle Williams' character. I just the moment she found out and she could not say anything, and you just mm. see slowly just eating away at her through the years. Yeah, okay, I want to ask you a question. In that scene, I noticed this. Uh, when Heath is getting ready to grab her purse, come back in and say, hey, they're, they're leaving, she's got her purse. Do you think she... It, was she grabbing her purse because she was about to leave? Maybe. I, I think what it was that she was going to give him money to go get cigarettes or something like that. And he told okay, her... Okay, yeah, in stand in mm-hmm. yeah in the book that is a little bit clearer but i think that's what it was and i think she was trying to get him to try to get him to stay a little bit more or something like try to get him back at a certain time and not just be gone for so long yeah like three days <laughs> yes <laughs> you know what um what begged like what got me about I guess her reaction and what made me question is so she had that moment where she saw them so she knew and then she makes that comment after the divorce to Jack about how she always wanted how they you know why they never came back with this so she wrote that note and tied it to the end of his line and when he came back the note was still there and I thought what was the point of that you already knew you saw him yeah. it's like what, what at that point she was in denial no, I don't think she was in denial. It was just, I, well, maybe she, okay, maybe she was a little bit in denial, but also at the same time, back then you didn't just maybe get they were divorced. just hugging really. Maybe they were just hugging really intimately. Yeah, they were hugging with their faces. <laughs> yes. Um. Well, there was some hugging involved, so. You know. <laughs> that is true, but that's it's not called, what she saw. Joseph, that wasn't a hug. It's called an embrace. <laughs> Um, oh, I remember that's probably why relationships don't work out with me that well. I don't know. I, I do. I think this. <laughs> just I think moving this, on from that. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think the film does a really good job of highlighting how the situation affected everyone, including not just the two of them, but also their wives. Whereas, you know, I liked I liked the contrast between how Michelle Williams handled it and how Anne Hathaway handled it because. Here, here's a question. Do y'all think Anne Hathaway's character knew? I don't think she did. Because yeah, I don't think Anne Hathaway's character gave a shit about her husband after a certain point in their marriage. I, I, I think she knew. I, I don't think she did. I think it, she was completely oblivious to it. Oh, I think she was too smart not to know. I think she really? just didn't care. Yeah, actually, or, I think so much. I think she cared about... You know, I guess I should put it this way. He gave her the life she wanted in the mm-hmm. sense of she got the family, she got the kid. So I don't think she cared what he did in his spare time. Yeah. I, I think the last time that she honestly gave a shit about him and definitely uh, gave him some victory sex the, later that night was on Thanksgiving morning whenever she, he told her father <laughs> right. off. Because <laughs> there's a brief moment in her eyes of, oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm gonna pretend. You can to go tell back. when she smiled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you? By so, the way, do you think her? Do you think that uh, the his father-in-law respected what he did? Because I, I kind of think he did. I think he was humiliated, but he also was respected at the same time. Yeah. 
right, it didn't but, matter because you never saw the father-in-law again through the rest of the movie. No, but that 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 was a part I cheered at because I was just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was the moment, Jake. Uh, that was the moment uh, Jack Twist won the movie. <laughs> <laughs> What's great about this movie is it kind of helped break both of these actresses out of the molds that they had created them for themselves. Because Michelle Williams, she had done some indie movies, but she was mostly known for Dawson's Creek. And I was like, how is she uh, the only person on Dawson's Creek to not end up in the Scream film? And then it dawned on me, like, oh, yeah. She was in Halloween H2O, which was basically a scream film. <laughs> um, but she, uh, going back to the joke at the beginning of the episode, he should have known not to step out on her because she took down Richard Nixon. <laughs> Does, has anyone seen the movie Dick with her and Kristen uh-uh. Dunst? Yeah. No. Oh. I watched it recently, and oh my god, we have to do it on this show. It's one of those movies, like, I didn't like it in 1999, because I think I wanted more Will Ferrell, and now, now that I know a whole lot more about that particular set of circumstances, that movie is so, so brilliant. And then Anne Hathaway, you know, she was Disney. And between this and uh, a movie called Havoc, which anybody, the only reason anybody ever rented was so we could see Anne Hathaway's boobs. Uh, th- but this, this broke her out of the Disney mold without having to go the rebellious rock star route that so many of them have gone. <laughs> Finally. So many <clears throat> Jesse's fanos of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and if you, and if you look, you, you have, Anne Hathaway's career is made up of three distinct eras. There's the Disney era, there's the respected era, and then there's everything she's done after Les Mis, which is... Oh, yes. And and by the way, can I just say, I don't mean to insult her, because I do, I love Anne Hathaway. Oh, I, I do I, too. I have adored her ever since Princess Diaries. Uh, bless her heart, she's not a blonde. No. <laughs> just, just no. no. Just no. No. <laughs> If this movie committed a crime, it was making her wear that wig. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Office, I'm sorry. Officer, no, this no. scene right here. <laughs> but and, I agree. And I, I you know, I think I think it kind of really did a lot for all four of them because mm-hmm. Heath Ledger sort of wanted to break out of that ten things I hate about you because I remember reading once he he did some kind of interview and he was talking about how he had been offered a similar he'd been offered something similar to 10 things I hate about you. And he saw his future going down that road and it was exactly what he didn't want. So I can't remember if it was this film or the Patriot, but I think it was the Patriot that he took instead. Yeah. Specifically for that reason. He was like, oh, that Roland Emmerich guy, he likes to blow shit up. I'm going to do that movie. (laughs) I apologize to Australia <laughs> and our listeners, not so much our hosts. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I was uh, I was surprised to see. I forgot Anna Ferris, David Arbor. Yeah, Cardellini was in this movie. I was just like, holy shit! I forgot they were in this movie. I remembered Linda Cardellini was in the movie, and I knew Kate Mara was in the movie, who was, um, who, if you don't know, is the sister of the lady that Zuckerberg dumped or got dumped by, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, Rooney Mara's sister, who I knew from 
Nip Tuck back when it was good because um, the son on that show, he she played his girlfriend until he caught her in bed with another cheerleader. And uh, then he cut the tip of his dick off because he was embarrassed he wasn't circumcised. It was, that was back when the show was good. <laughs> yeah, this movie, I mean, uh, one of the things I loved about it is it even took the small incidental characters that were just in one or two scenes and it somehow made them it made them useful and important and it capitalized on them one of the things i really one of the things that stuck out to me is because this movie had such a small amount of dialogue especially for the length and i started thinking about it and i was like it's because all of the dialogue was used up in that one scene with the woman jack danced with <laughs> they just went here. You get all of the dialogue. Why was why was the why was every scene on Brokeback Mountain like in ten pages, and this one scene is forty seven pages, Larry? Yeah, I, I like. I really like the. Uh, I really like the relationship that they built with Kate Mara, her version of his daughter. Yeah, and uh, Ennis. I thought that was a really beautiful little relationship there because it was you could tell there was a lot of love and respect there yeah what happened to the other daughter because he because they had two i don't know i was wondering that too i was just like it did well did they get that she existed well i think wait. his older daughter i think his older daughter was just more connected with him yeah you're right yeah because anytime she had something go, like she talked to him about just about anything but i did think it was funny he's like Who's, where's this Troy? She's like, Daddy, I don't, I don't date Troy anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you think? She, do you think she knew? Because I don't know. I just got the, I got the sense that the people in their lives knew, and just didn't say anything about it, other than obviously Michelle's William, Michelle Williams' character, because she was so, she was so hurt by it. But I always thought that Anne Hathaway knew and just didn't care, because as long as he stayed married to her, he didn't hurt, he didn't hurt yeah. her. Well, and and he, his parents and she, obviously knew. Well, and she probably was also assuming that Jack was going to see another woman. Because she didn't even know Ennis's name. She just knew it was his fishing buddy or his hunting buddy. So, and I, whenever I say I don't think she knew, I don't think she knew he was gay. Because, and it wasn't until his death and then... Ennis talking about how they spent time on Brokeback Mountain together, that was the moment she it, it all totally clicked for because that's the moment she starts tearing up in that final scene. That's possible. I I definitely think his parents knew, that's for sure. And I oh, that was yeah. one of my favorite things because you could see the contrast in his parents. His you know, his dad knew and obviously was having a difficult time with it, but his mom was completely accepting. Yeah. Well, and you know, typically uh, in those situations, the mom usually is the more accepting of the two. Not always, I know, but that seems to be the cliche. Is like, especially whenever it's gay characters in a certain time period, that maybe the mom would be a little bit more open. You know, and the dad was just like, "Nope, no, no son of mine is going to make queer sissy or whatever insult he wants to throw at him." Yeah, that that does tend to be the trope of it. Yeah. I mean, and even um, Jack and Ennis are hesitate to, to put a label on it because, you know, one of the first things they say to each other afterwards is like, I ain't no queer. 
So let's talk a little bit about Linda Cardellini's character. You know, after they split, she's a waitress that takes an interesting interest in Ennis. And I, I think I think if there's another character to feel sorry for, it's her because she's trying to get in there. And you know, I think Ennis appreciates the fact that he's getting regular sex from her, but he does not give a shit about her. <laughs> at all <laughs> like and that that's the period of time where after he basically threatens to beat the shit out of uh alma in the in the kitchen he just kind of emotionally shuts down like he's just this wall that no one can get you know get past yeah and i think I feel sorry for... This movie makes it so hard not to feel sorry for every single one of the characters. And they all handle it so differently, which is what I... Which is what I like so much about the movie, is this is... This entire movie is a contrast in and of itself. Um, mostly with Ennis and Jack, because they're so very different in the way that they handle the situation that's going on. It's obvious they're both in a lot of pain, but Jack is so much more upfront about it. But it, it mm-hmm. almost seems like Ennis is in more pain just because he's bottling it all up. Question for the question for the group. Is there is there a version of this story where Ennis does listen to Jack and they find a place and are able to live happily ever after? Mm. Yes. Yeah, but it's it would have to be a kind of a different Ennis a little bit. He he struggles so much with it. Yeah, and it's really not until Jack's dead that he's willing to accept that Jack was the love of his life. Which is the way my love of the life is going to find out. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I agree. I, I think if it happens, it's it's another 20 years of the same thing. Which, by the way, can we talk about that for a second? That was something that bothered that did bother me a little bit about the film. I thought that I thought the film did a good job of subtly aging them mm-hmm. because it's only been twenty years, so they don't have to they don't have to massively age them. I thought they did a really really good job of doing it subtly. Yeah. But May- if you do the math of how old Jack was when he died, they couldn't have been more than like twenty. No, uh, Jack would have been nineteen. Just, and I just was not buying that. <laughs> well, well, you gotta Sorry. remember in eighties in eighties horror. If you were a senior in high school in the movie in real life, you were closer to thirty nine years old. So <laughs> I know, but usually, usually you could buy it. Like they they got in the ballpark. Well, and and Heath Ledger is only four years older than his daughter. So <laughs> in the real life, so. Let me give you exactly. This, let me give you this fatherly advice: <laughs> freshman the year after I graduated. <laughs> yeah, I that that is something that did bother me a little bit. I don't know. I guess it it's it's just a little bit of an oversight that sort of took me out of the film for a second. Like, I want to give you some advice whenever you get to my age, four years from now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know it's a long ways away. But, Look, uh, your mom and I were really, really young. <laughs> but, but you know, in the in the in the world of the story, I mean, it makes sense because you know he and Alma are high school sweethearts, and this is and 
these two, and they're both dropouts, uh, according to the book. So they're, they're trying to make something of their lives at this point. And that's, and that's the time in your life when you do dumb shit, like go live on a mountain for three months, herding sheep. Right. Yeah. You you don't do that shit when you get to be our age. (laughs) That's a young person's game. I don't know who you're calling old, but... (laughs) Okay, do you want to go raise sheep, herd sheep on a mountain in the summer? Um, No, but to be... Well, hold on. First of all, is Jake Gyllenhaal there? Because that changes the answer. (laughs) Okay. Second of all, is Jake Gyllenhaal there? And are we going to recreate Sam Raimi's Spider Man the way it should have been? Okay, then, yeah, we're in. And second of all, um, I wouldn't have wanted to do that when I was 20. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's not a good question. (laughs) Yeah. Let's let's point to the scene in those first 45 minutes that looked fun. Uh, The scene when they were in the bar, and that's. Because everything looked cold and like you could die at any second. Once again, is it Jake Gyllenhaal there? Oh, Lord. Because then the mountain is just not so bad. (laughs) As we're snuggling, Jake, explain to me what the hell Donnie Darko is about. I don't know what the hell it's about. Yeah, no one knows. Richard <laughs> Kelly knows. Stop talking. Uh, killing the moment. We will. I think we are going to cover brothers, so so we will have to get into the whole Spider-Man discussion because <laughs> it's so funny. Because I, I I don't disagree with you about the whole Spider-Man situation. However. The interesting thing about the movie Brothers, which I love, is once again, giving it a Friends title, it would be the one where I learned Tobey Maguire can act. It's also going to be the one called, the, the one where John tried to make Sammy watch the Danish original version and got shot down. <laughs> no. And once again, does the Danish original version have Jake Gyllenhaal? No, but it has the exact same screenplay. Okay. I think. Well, I, I don't know. I haven't seen either one. Sorry, I'm going it loses. To... It's from the director of that um, Bradley Cooper uh, J-Law movie that you hate, that everyone hates. Was it oh, Serena? Serena. Oh, God, that yeah. was awful. That's what happens when language when directors uh, start stepping out of their original language. And that was coming from someone that definitely believed they, need a, they needed a box set and also to get married. Wait, are you insulting me? No, no, I'm, I'm saying that's what I thought. And, you know, the whole thing that kind of stinks about that is Lady Gaga had to come across, you know, come around and ruin everything with all her chemistry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you leave our patron saint Gaga out of this. Because up until then, it was all about Benifer. I mean, Bradifer. I guess you call it. Yeah. One of the first. Before we move on to, I think, any of the categories, um, I have a villain that's about to enter the chat. And it's called the 78th Annual Academy Awards. Going back and looking over at the film year that was 2005 leading into the 2006 Oscars, 
I didn't really have a, a horse in the game whenever it came to the Best Picture nominees. The Best Picture nominees were um, Crash, Brokeback Mountain, Capote, Good Night and Good Luck, and Munich. And back then, I was somewhere between Team Good Night and Good Luck, which I knew it didn't have a shot, and Munich, which you know was Spielberg. And I, what about I still Capote? Made, I, I thought Capote was okay. I, I was. I was all about if if anyone deserves the uh, Oscar for the acting performance, yeah, give it to Philip Seymour Hoffman because he kind of killed it. But whenever it came to Best Picture, I think we all thought it was going to be Brokeback Mountain because it was leading in the nominations. It, I think it got the Golden Globe, um, but it seemed to be the you know the front runner. And of the five that that won, back then I think I was okay with Crash, but that movie has not aged um, well. I'm sorry. Can we talk about that for a second? So I, I will say this: I think that Brokeback Mountain is, in every way, shape, and form, a better film and more deserving of an Oscar. However, I don't understand why people hate Crash so much because I thought it was a good film. The reason people hate Crash now is because upon reevaluation, it's low hanging fruit in terms of a discussion about racism. It's kind of, and, and it takes what is a very complex discussion and beats you over the fucking head with a sledgehammer about it. And honestly, it's, I, 2005, John, and even 2005, Roger Ebert would disagree with what I'm about to say. I don't think it's a good movie. I I don't think it's well written. I think it's just I honestly think it's just nonsense. And that's kind of become the public consensus of the movie is that it's just plus it's just the fact that Brokeback Mountain lost. And to be honest, if I was going to go back and make my list of the best films of 2005, I Crash wouldn't enter the discussion. Brokeback Mountain would probably be on there somewhere, probably towards the bottom of my list, because that was the same year that gave us Hustle and Flow and Old Boy, the original, and uh, uh, my personal favorite film of that year, which was A History of Violence. And none of those got... Best Picture nominees. I I, I don't think it was the strongest year for the Academy Awards. Well, I I see what you're you're saying. And I think undoubtedly Brokeback Mountain was a more deserving film. But I do think that Crash was... I think that Crash was well acted. And I don't... I can can understand it having some, some... People having some criticism of it being surface level, but I don't know. I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. And I think, to be fair, I think it's an unfair criticism to say it offers no solutions when that's what 99% of the films do. They they show you a problem and they hand you no solution. I I was going to say kind of the same thing because one of my top 10 films is Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And, uh, the solution to uh, racism in that neighborhood and the death of Radio Rahim 
Sorry, Joseph, I'm spoiling a 30-year-old movie for you. Um, <laughs> 35-year-old movie. Uh, the solution was to throw a trash can through the window of the pizzeria and let the neighborhood burn it down. That was the solution. But I think Do the Right Thing is a much better film. Uh, and also, to also, I need to ask a question. Uh, when was the last time you saw Crash? Um, it's been a few years, but it hasn't been that long. Okay. I probably haven't seen it since theaters. I, I liked it, yes. but I never felt the need to go back. So part of me wonders is, like, do we both need to have a reevaluation of it? Probably. And I do think, you know, Hustle and Flow was a really good movie. I, I don't necessarily think it would have made – it might have made my top movies of the year. I don't think it would have made a best picture necessarily. But History of Violence, um, that's a good argument. Yeah, history yeah. uh, <laughs> of violence is really good. I, I I love that movie. Also, let's just be honest. Crash, two thousand five Crash is not even the best movie called Crash. That has to go to once again David Cronenberg, who made History of Violence, who uh, made a film about people who get uh, turned on getting into car accidents. And to be fair, anytime I hear the, about the movie Crash, I do not think about the Oscar-winning movie. <laughs> I think about that. <laughs> it's like, where my brain is going to go find the more fucked-up, depraved version of this story. So thank you, David Cronenberg, for delivering. Back whenever my, my family had the video store, mm-hmm. That was a movie we had to put a disclaimer on the box saying, uh, this is for adults only. Yeah. No kids can rent this. <laughs> well, and to be fair, no kid would like that movie because it is not the most warm or endearing film to anyone, really. <laughs> but they did it because most people were like, oh, this looks like a, you know, an interesting yeah. kind of. Yeah. Drop up, watch it with the family and they're like no 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 please you do not know this. <laughs> yeah by the way uh, Criterion put that out on Blu-ray and I used uh, Christmas money from my grandmother to buy that Blu-ray <laughs> so, so technically my grandma, grandmother bought me a movie about people having car accidents and then sex <laughs> immediately <laughs> thanks Gam Gam <laughs> A surface-level discussion that takes a much more complex discussion and beats you over the head with it and offers you no solutions. And also the fact that a uh, woman who's, you know, who was the victim of racism is now going to be the uh, okay with the cop that was that basically uh, sexually assaulted her and insulted her in the beginning of the movie? No. <laughs> also, did you know this movie has a sequel? What now? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, so there is a movie called Brokeback Mountain 2. It came out in 2020. It is two hours and 14 minutes. <laughs> and it is written, directed, and starring... Only John Birmingham, and it is a movie who finds himself alone in the mountains to ponder what happened, being separated from his wife and children for years, and finds God in the process, in which he sings songs the entire time. Oh no. That sounds yes. terrible. <laughs> yeah. It does not have a star rating yet on IMDb because no one can rate it because it hasn't been 
released. <laughs> and but nor um, should it be. Yeah. Also, this film uh, became an opera, uh, and Anne Pruel, who wrote the no- novel, actually wrote the libretto for <laughs> for the novel. I don't know if it was well received or not, but it, it moved from the screen to the stage, which is cool. And apparently, whenever she saw the movie, um, she was blown away by it. So I think they, I, I don't think they met her expectations. I think they like exceeded them. It sounds like it. Yeah. Because they had to invent half this movie, but Larry McMurtry and Diana Asana said they took the, t- the subtext to create the movie because they used every line of dialogue and story point in the n- novella, which. Which, by the way, Randy Quaid uh, in the special features on the Blu-ray told a story about how uh, he was at the gym and he was reading this. The, he found the Vanity Fair issue where the story was published, and he couldn't finish the story while he was working out, so he stole the magazine from the gym to take it home and finish it. Nice. And he was just like, you know, because he had heard Larry McMurtry was involved in the two and worked together previously on. on Last picture show, so he's like, if anyone's gonna gonna do, you know, do this justice, it's Larry. And I think that was the moment he was just like, I have to be involved in this somehow. <laughs> and like, like I said, watching watching this film, it reminds you that Randy Quaid, whenever he started out, was not always the goofy character. I mean, he in a way he kind of was, but this movie, and then thinking about stuff he did in the seventies, like. Um, you know, Last Picture Show and Hal Ashby's The Last Detail, you're just like, he was so much more than Cousin Eddie and so much more than, you know, his character from Independence Day. I mean, I, those are iconic characters for a reason, but he was so much a better actor than I think he was allowed to be. And I, I don't think we'll ever get to see him truly, you know, explore that again which is a shame but part of that is is in fact not part of it most of that all of that is his own damn fault uh real quick just want to say our boy roger ebert uh no surprise four stars out of four and he made this his number five movie of 2006 i don't want to talk about what his number one was (laughs) was it crash it was fucking crash oh god (laughs) yeah (laughs) His, his top his top ten was uh, Crash, Syriana, Munich, uh, June Bug, then then Brokeback Mountain, then Me and You and Everyone We Know, then Nine Lives, not the Kevin Spacey cat movie. <laughs> like, um, oh my god! <laughs> then then uh, number eight is another movie where I need to go back in time and sit down with Roger and ask him what the fuck. Uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. Then uh, an Irish film called Yes, and then number ten was uh, Danny Boy's Danny Boyle's Millions, which is a film I haven't seen today, but it was his family movie. We're not going to get into an argument about how King Kong was actually a good movie, and you're just wrong. You're right; it was a good movie, 1933. Joseph's seen it. <laughs> oh my god! <Yeah. laughs> it's apparently a good film in 1978 as well with Jeff Bridges and uh, uh, Jessica Lange. No, Peter Jackson's version was good. Peter Jackson's version was seven hours long. I just want you to know, sometimes I just enjoy y'all's arguments. It's great. (laughs) It's like mommy and daddy fighting, and I'm just like, which one's going to win? All right, are y'all ready for best line, worst line? 
Uh, yeah. Well, before we before we do best line, worst line, we do have. Uh, you can't handle the truth. Uh, I think we all agree that the line. I just wish I knew how to quit you. Is the I, you can't handle the truth for this movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was <laughs> it, it permeated popular culture and the American lexicon for better or worse. So, Joseph, best line. Uh, I had a couple. When they're in bed uh, after meeting for so long, it's like, what do we do now? I said, I bet there's nothing we can do now. Can't do about it now. Just, uh, I, I can't, that kind of hit me really good. Yeah. Because that, that just, just like, there's, they want to do something about it, but they know they can't. I'm sorry. I just, I want to ask y'all thoughts on this because I just think it's interesting. I don't know that if either of y'all have ever heard this speech, but Reese Witherspoon gave this speech at a, a women's event. I don't know how long ago she gave it, but she gave this speech about why she started her production production company and why they focus on women's work. And she said she'd started noticing this trim, this trend in films where she said, inevitably at some point in almost every film, there will be a moment where the girl turns to the guy and goes, what do we do now? And she said, when I told my daughter this, she started to notice it. That, that that's always occasion. Even, even in, uh, movies with with strong female character with strong female characters, and she said, "You know, when have you ever heard?" The point of her the point of her her whole speech was just how it was just a comment on culture and how a woman always has to turn to a man and ask him, "You know, what do we do now?" And that's not that's not reality. Well, ever since yeah. that happened, I started to notice it in films. I mean, it's everywhere. It's it's in television. It's in almost film. Almost every film, I notice that there will inevitably be a point where a woman turns to a guy and goes, "What do we do now?" And then okay. when he's then when he said it, yeah. I just noticed it. Okay, so we're gonna add a new segment from this point <laughs> forward. <laughs> do like, we what have? Do do in, what do you do in a film with two guys? <laughs> well, I mean, it's still a romance between two people, so that line does fit. But it also fits in Reese's context as well. It's just it was delivered by a man and not a woman. But I think it counts in the oh we're doing this now we're, we're having this conversation. Let, let's start. Let, all right, let's start pointing that out every time mm-hmm. it pops up in a movie. Because well, you, you know, feel bad for even liking that line, <laughs> as you should, Joseph. And I will tell you that the most recent times I've noticed it is I noticed it in Aaron Brockovich. There is a, there's a a point where um, Julia Roberts turns to her boss and says, "What do we do now?" And I noticed it in A Few Good Men because Demi Moore asked Tom Cruise, "What do we do now?" See, and I've never noticed that. You're, you're gonna start to notice it. Now that I yeah. pointed it out. It's it's kind of like whenever you, it's kind of like whenever you buy a, buy a, a, a like a black Volkswagen. That's all you notice on the highways. Black Volkswagens. Well, my second favorite line is it's one we the scene we all like. Now sit down, you ignorant son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> that was that's probably my all time favorite line. That was a great line. Yeah. Uh, Sammy, you want to go or you want me to go? Yeah, um, mine's quick because you said mine. Mine was definitely that's more words than I've said in a year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I got two. One is kind of a gross line, but just the way it was written, it was so poetic. I kind of liked the way it came out. And that line was from uh, Randy Quaid, actually. He was 
you boys sure found a way to pass the time up, make the time pass up there. Twist, you guys wasn't paid to get getting paid to leave the dog's babysitting the sheep while you stem the rose. And I was just like, that is a gross, creepy line, but at the same time, Larry McMartry wrote some fucking poetry right there. <laughs> but uh, another one of my favorite lines was uh, from Jack. It was, I swear, it was you know, in the hotel scene. When he's like, I swear I didn't know we were just going to get into this again. Oh, hell yes, I did. I redlined it all the way. Couldn't get here fast enough. <laughs> Yo, got a worst line? Yeah. Uh, my worst line, I had a hard time picking one. But it's not really a bad line. It just made me hate characters more. Like whenever it's showing uh, Jack's family uh, or his in-laws and that he's riding the tractor and he's like a... Isn't that the piss ant that uh, used to ride bulls? Yeah. And I was just like, you know what? Fuck you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's the only thing I found. It just, that was just one of those that just made me hate characters more. I, I don't really have a yeah. line that I didn't like. And one of them kind of falls into your category of uh, makes you hate characters more. And I think it was just the way this line was delivered. But it also, it was a line in the book. And it, I hated it in the, in the book as well as whenever she's, uh, calling whenever Alma's calling Ennis out for uh, his affair, and she just goes, "Jack Twist, Jack Nasty." It's like, really? Uh, That's the yeah, best. yeah. It, well, that was that was terrible. <laughs> that was pretty bad. Yeah, and then um, for the same reason, I liked Randy Quaid's line that I picked. There was one line that uh, Jill and Hall delivered that I was just like, "Okay, okay, Larry, let's let pump the brakes on the on the poetry." <laughs> whenever he says, you know, friend, this is a goddamn bitch of an unsatisfactory situation. It's like, <laughs> good Lord, <laughs> no one would ever say that. <laughs> Sammy, did you manage to find one? Oh, no, 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 I have one. Um, when, I can't remember the name of the waitress, but when the waitress confronts Ennis after they, you know, he kind of dipped on her, and he says, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't know fun anyway, and she said, <laughs> girls don't fall in love with fun. That's just patently untrue. it's not just a bad line it's inaccurate that's (laughs) right it's not just a bad Mm -hmm. line it's also inaccurate so um yeah wasn't that the uh wasn't that scene set in the 80s 60s oh well that would have been set in the 80s yeah yeah that would have been early 80s he should have rebutted with like well cindy lopper would like to disagree (laughs) (laughs) yeah cindy lopper would disagree with you Ennis Del Mar doesn't know who Cindy Lauper is. is. He's got he's he's got a busted radio that's been stuck on the same shitty country channel. You mean to tell me he days. doesn't know that girls just want to have fun? No, I don't know if Ennis Del Mar knows what fun is. I don't think with, so. Because unless Jack Twist is around, I was going to say. Is, most uh, stiff, rigid, sourpuss of a human being. It's like, you know, you can enjoy life without Jack. It is possible. I find it very, uh, very hard to do that. No, no, you said, oh, I find, I find it real hard. Oh. <laughs> I, I, was, I was trying to make it where you can understand me and, like, as character at times. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but um, <clears throat> Ellen wasn't the host for the Oscars, but uh, on her TV show, she did do some uh, Oscar breakdown stuff. 
and she, for no discernible good reason, uh, decided to do an impression of Heath Ledger's uh, character in this movie. And then all she did was just mumble on a cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's like instilled the accuracy. No, but honestly, I started to wonder with comparing it with with uh, Tom Hardy's performance. Mumbling. No, no, if it's if it's a thing because of the accents. If for I just started to wonder if no. for some reason it makes it easier for them to do the accent. No, because I've seen other people from Australia and um, England and. Uh, Jersey do better, more clear, dis- uh, discernible Southern accents than them. I mean, they they did a decent job. It's just this one character Ledger played, and then almost every character uh, Tom Hardy has played since uh, Shinzon and uh, Star Trek Nemesis has been a whole bunch of I don't know what you just said. <laughs> oh, oh wait, no, he he was. Tom Hardy, Hardy was kind of easy to understand what he was saying in um, the movie Bronson, because mo- most of it was the word fuck and the C word. <laughs> well, you there haven't I- even gotten to This Means War yet, so you haven't been introduced to rom-com Tom Hardy yet. Oh, no, I'm it's... so it, excited. It, it, is, it is sitting on my shelf right now, staring at me like the punishment I am receiving for something that I'm still not sure about. <laughs> it is not punishment. I will tell you this, if this makes you feel any better, and it doesn't mean you'll like it, but my dad, who is not at all a fan of romance, like romance movies, actually likes that film. Okay. So, I don't know. that helps I, at all. <laughs> I, I will say, um, you're... I know the films your dad likes, and so far I've been on board, but I'm going to be judging him the entire time we watch this movie. (laughs) So, uh, things that we liked about this movie that we haven't talked about. Joe, I'm going to go to you. Uh, I don't know anything that we haven't talked about, because we kind of covered everything, I think. But just just overall, I really liked it. I just like the performances that their chemistry was really good. And I just love all the subtleties that they put in everybody put in their characters. Yeah. Like everybody just like, even uh, almost, she was just, you could tell how, how broken she was. And she, you felt bad for, her, even though she was just, she was going about things the wrong way. You're just like, I feel bad for this woman because she has no idea how to deal with this. Yeah. And, and just everybody else. And there's just, just the, uh, after so many years of just not being indifferent to this movie, now I'm just like, wow, I can't believe I missed all this great stuff in this movie the first time around. Yeah. Because there's a lot of subtleties and there's a lot of stuff that, that just you can sink your teeth into. And watch it a couple more times and still get something completely different out of it. It somehow makes it worse when you think about the fact that not only was her heart broken in this film, it was broken in real life also. So. Yeah. There's yeah. a depressing thought for you. Well, thank you for depressing me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here to help. <laughs> I don't want to say I like this scene, but I have to bring up one moment in this film, and it's Jack's death. The brief glimpses we see of it, it is... Even back in 2005, when I saw that, that shit was fucking haunting. And 
the fact that we're doing this episode in Pride Month, that being gay was hard for people back then. I mean, damn near impossible. And it's still not better because that shit still happens to this day. And, but God, what an effective scene. And, um, and I'm glad that we see how brutal it is, but we don't see, you know, like it didn't go full Scorsese. Hold on. Let, let me ask you guys a question. Cause I want your interpretation on this because mm-hmm. I think I read what happened there a little bit different than y'all might've. Do you think that when, um, Anne Hathaway's character told Ennis what happened to Jack, that that was the true story? No. Okay. I don't. I disagree. I think you think his what... face really got caved in by a fucking... No. No. <laughs> because tire. of the way she tells the story. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying it did or it didn't. I'm saying the way I interpreted the film, that is when she's telling the story, that is what Ennis is imagining actually happened. Yeah. But in the book, whenever Ennis finally goes and meets with Jack's parents... He knows from the way they're talking, there was no doubt that it w- was Jack was beaten to death. I mean, the movie never says one way or the other. It, you, you, have the, you have the opportunity to make your own decision, but I personally believe just because of the foreshadowing at the beginning of the movie that that's how Jack really died and not... Oh, what, okay. What yeah, yeah, Lorene says, because uh, w- and also for Lorene and her pride at, at that point, is she going to say, "Yeah, my husband was took a pipe to the face be- uh, because he hit on the wrong guy"? He's, she's not going to say that. She's she's processing it in her own way, but at the same time, still kind of protecting herself. Because if we didn't have that scene early on with Ennis talking about his, he, him being taken out to a field at nine years old to, to, see a dead, uh, to see a corpse and knowing how that corpse became a corpse. That's why I think Lorene's story is just something she tells herself and other people to save face. As for less depressing stuff, um, you know, I, I do like those early scenes of... Um, Jill and Hall and Hathaway together, and no, not just because she went topless, but I, they're they're meet cute in the uh, bar. <laughs> I I love that because I, I personally would love uh, Anne Hathaway to come over to me and just say, "Are you waiting on an open invitation?" Yes, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so. buddy. Yeah. <laughs> just, all right, Sammy, what you got? Um, I mean, it's I want to say all. All of it. Um, I thought just that, I mean, God, just the scenery shots were incredible. And I liked how they capitalized on the little stuff, specifically when he took the shirt home. Just little, little things like that that built up their relationship. Yeah. Um, I mean, all of it, the acting, the chemistry was perfect. Even their chemistry with their respective wives mm-hmm. was was really good. But I think what I liked is, okay, this is not disparaging the movie we watched last week. Mm-hmm. But I think this is a far more respectful handling of the situation than last week's. Because what I loved about this film is everything about this relationship felt earned. And the, the entire focus of the movie was about how in love with they were with each other. It, the sex was almost irrelevant. 
Like it wasn't yeah. the it wasn't the focus of the relationship. However, they're two very different films that you can't that are both good yeah. for different reasons, and you well, can't really compare them. This is just my preference. Well, and also, this movie is a love story. The other story was, you know, a movie about criminals. And Fair. If Corky had been played by a man, if the Wachowskis ha- did have to take that terrible note to make it the cliche, the gray area male character was always going to walk away with the femme fatale at the end of the movie, um, assuming he lived to the end of the movie. So it being Corky and also <laughs> Corky being a woman and tired of the cliche of, <clears throat> oh, it's a movie about uh, gay characters. We would like them to not be dead at the end of the movie. Um, that's why she, Corky got the happy ending and Violet got the happy ending. Um, and sadly, we don't have a happy ending here. I, I think Ennis is now more honest with himself at the end of this movie, but I mean, he's not going to be happy because the love of his life is dead and he's keeping his memory alive and, you know, he's processing it the way he needs to process it. And who knows, maybe in a uh, actual non-terrible sequel, um, Ennis met someone else, uh, you know, maybe maybe another bar waitress, maybe another ranch hand. Who knows? Annie Pruel will probably never write that. <laughs> and I am not Googling to see if there's any fanfic sequels out there because life is short. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, what didn't y'all like? I, I really, I had a hard time figuring out what I hated, didn't like about it. Not, again, not that I didn't like the scene. It just made me feel terrible for Alma when they're um, they're trying to have sex. Oh yeah, oh, I know where yeah. you're going. That that was where he was just like, "Well, if you don't, uh, I forget exactly what he said, but he, like, well, I don't have to be doing this, you know." I could. You well, know. he was like, "If you don't want any more kids, then I can leave you alone." Yeah, it was just like, "Oh, that was kind of hurtful." That just mm. well, but she got him back with the, "I'd have more of your kids if you'd support them." Yeah, which was also pretty awful. That was pretty awful. I was just like, oh, it's not that I didn't like the scene. I thought the scene was really well done. Yeah, it was just it was a hurtful scene. But that he said that that was a struggle to even say that was something I didn't like. It was just I liked the scene. It was just woof. Yeah, the pain on both sides. John. Um. Okay. So uh, remember a few minutes ago, whenever I said you know that uh, it was an effective scene and that uh, you know. It I, doesn't mean I enjoy uh, Jack's death scene. Um, I un- Even though I have seen a lot of movies where this is the cliche and like them all to varying degrees, it is a little depressing when it is an LGBTQ plus movie where one, at least one of the characters doesn't live to see the credits roll. It's just like... I, I understand that's the story they were telling and that this is a tragedy, but it doesn't make it any less fun to watch. That that being said, um, as for like things that make me angry, there's nothing except for Jack Nasty. That's, <laughs> I think that's the, that is the major flaw in this movie. Is like even uh, Gyllenhaal's line, 
of pure poetry that I think is the most pretentious sentence in this movie. The, the lowest moment is the delivery of Jack Nasty. Nothing against Michelle Williams. I don't think there's a single actress on this planet that's going to deliver that, that line, and it'd be good. Other than that, I don't have anything bad to say about this movie. Which is weird, because like 10 years ago, I would or, or even last week before having rewatched it, I would have talked about how boring this movie is. And by the time it's in ends, I don't give a shit. And now I'm seeing this after a whole new light. I'm like, I, I've been wrong for 15 years of my life. What about you? I agree. There's, there's really not much. I could see how some people could uh, think the film is, is slow. I could see how some people could come to that conclusion. It just doesn't bother me. And uh, the only thing that, you know, what Joseph said actually kind of sparked this in my mind. The conversation between her and Ennis, something that bothered me about her character that I see is, it's well written, it's intentional, but as a character flaw that bothered me about her is while I feel so bad for her because of what she couldn't control, and what wasn't his fault either, you know, just the pain of being in a relationship where you're the person she was with didn't love her. She was also had her flaws as a wife in the sense of she she expected a lot for him. And she she seemed to blame him for their financial circumstance when she married him. Knowing yeah. the situation they were in, she made the choice to marry him. She made the choice to have children with him, knowing who he was. Mm-hmm. And the situation they were in. And so he's not really to blame for her choice to do that. And also, they got married when they were still kids. I mean, True. granted, they looked like they were damn near 30, but they were still <laughs> Probably kids. because they were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so just for... Just for consistency, because I don't think there's any real mystery here. Uh, Joseph, Sammy, did you survive your trip to Brokeback Mountain? You go, Sammy. Absolutely. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to ask the one who picked the movie, basically. Yes. <laughs> yes, I love this. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I love this film. It's great. Well, uh, guess I'll go next. Uh... <laughs> okay. Yeah, Yo, I... Joseph, did you, did you survive? <laughs> Yes, I survived it. It's funny because if you, again, like you, if you would have asked me, like even last week, if you're going to survive it, I probably would be like, probably barely survived, you know, just like, it's not bad, but now, like, I really, I wholeheartedly survived this movie. It's one of those, I've watched it in a new light, and I think I was just too harsh on this movie, because I was, I was younger back then, just, probably just didn't give a shit. Yeah. And now, uh. 35 year old me is just like oh I see what they're doing now and this is this is this is a really good sad movie it's not just I I guess when you're a teenage girl and the focus of the movie is Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal and they both get varying levels of nude in the film it's far more interesting to you than it might have been to both of (laughs) y'all well 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 for 2005 John and Joseph you also had Naked and Hathaway and Michelle Williams. Yeah, so, that's true. That's true. It was it was equal opportunity. It was equal opportunity. It was just I, I don't know. Of course, me back then was thought about things a little bit differently. But yeah, that was like, oh, I got to see boob. I'm happy. <laughs> 
But that was as far as my thoughts. <laughs> God, <laughs> the amount of those thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just a little bit more to those thoughts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is a lovely film filled with a lot of nuance and subtlety and boobs. Uh, <laughs> Don't forget the boobs. You're forgetting about those. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I swear I'm an adult. <laughs> okay, it's turn. okay. It's okay. Women do it, too. Um, <laughs> I think we had a discussion after the first Fifty Shades of Grey about the 30-second scene of him just doing pull-ups shirtless and how that... <laughs> <laughs> that instantly made the movie an Oscar winner. Uh, hey, you you weren't there for the night that uh, a friend of ours who I'll leave I'll leave his name alone. But when Brad Pitt took his shirt off and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, oh my God. started applauding and I laughed my ass off. Oh my God! I think I heard all the women in the in the theater collectively sigh. Or y'all were both there the night that we all watched. Um, the Schneider cut of Justice oh, League, and yeah. two of us screamed <laughs> when, when um, screaming is putting it lightly. when when Henry Cavill put his uh, shirt back on. <laughs> yeah, screaming was putting it lightly. I think y'all just about had a heart attack. <laughs> Look, some some of us kept it internal, Joseph. <laughs> we were going through things. <laughs> All so. right, John. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think it's any mystery that I survived the film and I'm so glad that I, I took a decade off from, uh, trying to, trying to appreciate this movie. And now, now that I'm older and I mean, not that I was, you know, a, a you know, a teenager watching Brokeback Mountain the first time I was not. I, I was receptive to seeing a gay cowboy movie, and I got um, something I didn't know. I, I don't think I knew how to react to now being, you know, older, seeing more films, a little bit wiser, and also now kind of being queer. I, I have a much deeper appreciation for the film, but also just from a, from a film standpoint, uh, I don't know what film I watched all those years ago because I would even up to last week I would have bitched about how slow this movie is, and now I'm like this movie kind of zips by. <laughs> I don't know what I was watching, so I am I'm full. I'll give you give the audience a little bit of inside baseball um, on this um, when I was picking the movies uh, for Lesbian Week. I had two options, and I went bound for specific reasons and this week the um the other choice was the birdcage uh which is one of my favorite movies i love that movie to death and i really want to do that on the show sometime since it is since it qualifies because it was written by a woman and it was probably other than rocky horror one of the first lgbt films i'd ever seen i specifically you know took sammy's suggestion to do this film so i could give it a, a reevaluation with totally new eyes and i'm glad i did and sammy thank you for picking this for me and this might actually get put into the uh rewatch cycle a little bit 
more than it would have been. I was thinking worth. the same thing. Because yeah. it's, <clears throat> it's been a long time, and I was really just looking for an excuse to see this. And my yeah. other favorite film kind of within this realm is Milk. And Milk didn't fit into our criteria, which arguably this one very, very, very loosely fit into our criteria. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a stretch of the criteria um, because it was co-written and co-produced by a woman and the novel was written by, or novella was written by a woman and I think that's close enough. Mm-hmm. So, I, and Milk I it, had none of those things. So no, but luckily, Milk is coming up this month because uh, someone was in charge this month, and it was his time for Manly Movie of the Month, and uh, it's on the schedule. But unfortunately, Milk is Milk, and the documentary I'm making them watch along with it is not next week. Next week, we go back to Madrasha. And I'm sorry <laughs> for doing that. But next week, it is uh, B for bisexuals. And the thing I pulled out of my ass was Atomic Blonde with Charlize Theron and James McAvoy. And it counts. <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah. It, not, maybe not about, about bisexuality, but it's got bisexual characters and bisexual lighting and soundtrack that John really liked. <laughs> so <laughs> Okay. Yeah, so that's uh, for next week. Does anybody have anything uh, they want to plug? Not no. this week. No. Not really. Um, okay, I got a I got a quick shout out. Uh, uh, Mark, who is you know been on a couple of our episodes, he does on the Scream episode he, episodes. He was on Polyester recently. Uh, he does a Star Wars podcast uh, called Pink Milk. Uh, so it's on iTunes. He's part of the crew that does that. So go give it a listen. Check it out. Um, support our boy Mark <laughs> a little bit. And Mark is probably and Mark is definitely going to come back from for milk because uh, he loves that film and uh, we love Mark. So, but will we love Atomic Blonde? Is the question. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to segue back into this, but uh, but. Anyway, listeners, thank you for joining us on this. Sammy, thank you for picking this movie. Joseph, uh, thank you for continuing to join us as the quote-unquote guest that wouldn't leave. <laughs> you know, that's that's the title that I want. Yeah, I keep I keep doing that on uh, hoping one day I just get a cease and desist from pugs. <laughs> it's like, stop saying that. Uh, and listeners, thank you for coming along this week. If you like it, uh, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Uh, like and subscribe wherever you uh, are listening to this. Uh, you can shoot us an email at uh, survivingchickflicks.com. Or at, uh, survivingchickflicks at gmail.com. We, we don't have our own website yet. But we do have a Facebook. I have a Twitter. It's at, at, at TrevorJohn1210. I occasionally post about the show, and I occasionally post a whole bu- about a, about a whole bunch of bullshit. Most of you won't care about. Uh, and Sammy is killing it over there on TikTok and Instagram and uh, YouTube. And Joseph is here. <laughs> so. I'm just I'm just here for some moral support. That's what he's there for. Yeah. And uh, and until next week, listeners, we don't want to know how to quit you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Surviving Chick Flicks is created and hosted by John Baggett and Samantha McDaniel. Our audio engineer and editor is Cody McLean. For an ad-free version of the show, please visit patreon.com slash surviving chick flicks, where $5 a month gets you an ad-free version of the show, as well as our manly movie of the month. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. All opinions are that of the hosts, and no copyright infringements are intended. Surviving Chick Flicks is a Circle of Jug production, all rights reserved. I wish I knew how to quit you.